Wow. Things are crazy out there, huh? I mean, it would seem surprising that our country is so split on something, but it is spectacularly surprising that we are so split when collectively facing such a threat as a pandemic. Really think about what life was like on December 8th, 1941, or more recently, September 12th, 2001. People rallied. Recall images of flags waving from the sides of freeways. People fighting for the chance to serve their country. Rosie the Riveter flexing her production arm against the might of the Axis powers. Our society purchasing war bonds for the boys and the sacrifices of even the slightest sense of luxury by people in the wake of the greatest financial depression to that point or ever since. Man, that sure conjures up some strong sentiment, doesn't it? Look at us now. Part of us trying to use a Facebook degree to argue against the urging of epidemiologists and scientists or that our rights are being stripped. The other part so consumed with the circus of an executive office that they forget the greatest power still lies with those we elect to Congress. But here we all are, more than 67,000 dead and counting. That's more than all of the Vietnam War in less than three months. April will likely show the largest unemployment rate ever recorded. And we just want things to get back to normal. You probably can't tell me the last time 67,000 people died from anything and things just went back to normal. Sure, a lot of people might get back to work and you will eventually get to go shopping again. But you should prepare yourself. We will feel the impacts of this for a long time and we are entering a new normal. To talk about this, I'm speaking with John Finzel. He has a lengthy and distinguished list of accolades, but most pertinent is his time spent in the White House of both the Clinton and Bush administrations. After serving as a special forces team leader in the Gulf War and as a special forces company commander in places like Bosnia and Pakistan, John was part of a program called the White House Fellowship. During that time, he served in several capacities, but most relevant was with the then Homeland Security Council after September 11th. His insight on what we are dealing with now is prescient and critical for any American here, no matter your political leaning. I know we're all getting inundated with pandemic news and probably reaching some level of pandemic exhaustion. I promise I wouldn't share something with you unless it was worthwhile. I implore you to hear his message and his incredible stories. Welcome to the show. Welcome to No Shit There I Was, a show committed to sharing the stories and experiences of those in and around the military for everyone to hear. So please, relax and enjoy. So if you're anything like me, you're facing the impending future of going back to work with the additional obligation of wearing a mask. As if the prospect of wearing pants every day wasn't hard enough. I thought about wearing a gator I got on a snowboard trip, but it's about to get up to 90 degrees out there. No one wants sweat dripping down their neck when they're not getting grilled by their boss. Luckily, there's an easier and far cooler solution to your problem. Emblem Athletic just launched a multi-purpose mask called the Emblem Shield that you can customize by color and logo. And because nothing Emblem does is ever half-ass, this mask can also be deployed as a ponytail holder, a wristband, a bandana, and more. Hell, keep it in ice water on a hot day to cool down during yard work, or use it as a blindfold for, well, I don't know, pinatas? Look, no one wants to have to wear a mask unless you're at, like, Carnivale or something amazing like that, which was canceled anyway, so that's not happening. But if you have to do it, you may as well look amazing. Ordering couldn't be easier. Just submit your logo and the design team will transform it into something you and your team will love. They'll send you an exclusive store link where you can either order in bulk or allow your team to buy their own. Then boom! 
your team can get badass gear that reps your brand now and for years to come, when masks are hopefully a distant memory. Get over to EmblemShield.com to get started. As we get started, I just want everybody to keep in mind that this was recorded a couple weeks ago, so some information may be lacking behind the most recent headlines. So here we go. Welcome, John Finzel. Well, Joey, thanks very much for having me on. It's a uh, it's it's great to be with you on this uh, on this Sunday in the midst of our, our common quarantine. <laughs> no. um, and I think it's an ideal activity to to pursue right now because everything is remote, as you know. And and so I'm I'm here in Annapolis, and you know I uh, you know as I reflect back on my whole career, it's it's not something I could ever have predicted. I, you know, I did 30 years on active duty. I, I started off as a chemical officer, and then I ended up becoming a Green Beret. I entered into this program called the White House Fellowship Program. It's a, it's a great program. It's made up of about 20 uh, mid-grade professionals. You, you work for a cabinet member for a year. So I did that um, for both the Clinton administrations and the Bush administrations. I worked for the Office of Personnel Management. I ended up um, working also for the vice, in the vice president's office. And after that year was over. I continued in the vice president's office during the whole 9-11 period. We can talk about that. But, you know, and, and then after I retired, I ended up going to work for a great company that helps veterans financially, puts them in a better place. I run their foundation now. And so uh, that's really it in a nutshell. I like to talk a lot about leadership and talk a lot about the issues that kind of affect us every day, everything from, from leadership and all the way to, to storytelling and telling your stories, because I really believe that's important as well, Absolutely. particularly now as we're looking Definitely. at uh, living through this period. Yeah, and that's exactly what this podcast is about. So based on, you know, I've, I've gone to your site, I've looked through your entire background. It's really exciting to talk to you because I feel like we'll have to do several episodes because there's just so much to, to cover. <laughs> But you might lose some readership and listenership, I guess. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so at all. And and I do want to get to the leadership part later because there's so much yeah. that you do now. But one of the things as I was looking at it that really kind of struck me, the timeline of your career in the military is the precursor to what I heard coming into West Point. So you know my dad. Oh yeah. And Yeah, he's one of my heroes. <laughs> well he, he's definitely mine as well. But yeah. so when I was going to West Point my parents, I don't think they ever pictured me in the military for, I don't, I don't know why, but when I was younger, it didn't really seem to be my personality, which I think ended up being a good trait when I was in. Sure. But when I was going, yeah, when I was going to West Point, he said, hey, you get in, you know, you can serve, you, you might do a you know, rotation in Eastern Europe or somewhere like that. You go do some training and then you can get out. We're in a, a peacetime now. It's, it's pretty standard and, and, you know, you just kind of do training rotations in places or, or, or you may deploy, you know, in, in some conflict area, but it's not going to be anything big. And so that was the army that I was stepping into, which was interesting as I look at your timeline, you know, you... We're in during Desert Storm, Desert Shield, and then all the way through everything happening in Bosnia Herzegovina, and so it's a really neat time in the army because then you kind of slip into this pre 9/11 era where people are vying for whatever experience they can get in whatever hot spot they can get to, and little did we know, 9/11 happens and boom, you don't have to worry mm -hmm. about going, you know, trying to find a deployment anymore. Right, right. What was it like being in the army at that time? Well, you know, it's a great question. And, you know, as I, as I look back on it, Joey, it's, 
it's not like I said anything that I could have predicted. I you know I came in at the height of the Cold War, you know, and um, I, I came in as a, as a chemical officer, and so my whole focus then was on nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare. Um, the great irony in that was that. Uh, I, the only class I'd ever failed in my entire academic career was chemistry in high school. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I was like, what, is this some kind of bad joke or what, you know? But, oh, you know, no. Looking back on it, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that I had that, that experience because especially now, uh, I spent five years of my life studying and not only studying, but practicing the defense of uh, against biological warfare and viruses. And so here we are today, you know, and, and that's another thing that I couldn't have predicted. So these are all things that, I mean, there, you might not realize it at the time, but there's always, I think, a reason for um, the experiences. Now, you know, when, when you say you're vying for an experience, well, sometimes, you know, those experiences are hurled at you. You know, when I first came in, we were right there in the middle, you know, to defend the Fulda Gap, um, the, the Russian hordes coming through the Fulda Gap. And, and we were ready for that. And that's what we trained for. And then, of course, all these things evolve over time, different conflicts, different crises. And it really all depends on when you are serving. None of these conflicts is greater or lesser than the other. They're just different, right? Absolutely. So those are all things that I think that uh, really kind of define your service. And as you look back on it, one of the things I think that you do that the, the, the military, regardless of what service that you're in, uh, offers you is, is first of all, those experiences, but then secondly, those qualities that, that help you and kind of uh, not only uh, develop you, but define you really, because uh, they really do serve you well after you hang up the uniform. We can talk a little bit more about that as well. But I'm very grateful for for my service and and for all the experiences and especially all the people that I've been able to be around. I, I think about them every day. You know, I'm just for both you and for I. Not all of them are are with us today, but right. that doesn't keep me from thinking about them. Definitely. Well, I, you know, I can definitely see that you you have taken your experiences and you've translated them into something that you enjoy and you can spend your time on, but you can also kind of turn into something that, you know, builds a career. So, you know, you had experience in Bosnia and dealing with the tribunals and, and the war criminals, mm -hmm. and you have, have written about that. <laughs> well, you know, I, I started writing about all this because, you, you know, as well as I do, you come back from all these garden spots that we deploy to and people ask mm -hmm. you, what was it like? And, and I, I tried to explain it. Um, but after lots of different failed attempts, I said, you know what, um, that's not, this isn't working. So I said, well, why not write a book about it? And my first book started off as, is nonfiction, but then I realized the Department of Defense would never let me publish it. So <laughs> I said, well, I'll just turn it into a novel. But what I didn't realize at the time is that's a lot more work than I ever anticipated. And because right. you have to learn the craft of writing, you have to learn Absolutely. about, you know, character development and plot and pacing and all these things. And and it's uh, it's a whole different skill set that, that you have to kind of acquire. And, and that took quite a bit of time. So the first book took about 15 years to write. But wow. it was strangely therapeutic. You know, one of the things that I realized while I was writing is, is that you know, even though I was writing it for other people, it also had a great usefulness for me because it helped really put things into context for me and helped me kind of make sense of things, even though at the time it was it was fiction. And um, so. It's a, it's a great exercise, and that's why I really tell people, tell your story, because uh, if you don't, uh, it, it, some people may never hear it, you know, and these stories right. are, are kind of what uh, would help us through these hard times like the ones we're in right now. Absolutely. And I, I agree. I think people should take the time, take those experiences. There is a therapy to it. There's a catharsis 
to mm-hmm. recording your the events that happened to you and talking about how that impacted you. And then I think it kind of helps you see a way forward as well. Mm-hmm. And and by the way, uh, I really urge people right now during this whole pandemic to to do the same because none of us have ever been through anything quite like this before. In fact, the last time it ever occurred was more than 100 years ago and in 1918 um, and went all the way through um, 1920. And, and, you know, you had 50 million people die during that time. Can you imagine what that right. was like? And, and, uh, and so this is the time to start writing down all of your thoughts, even if it's just a short sentence or a paragraph, because uh, your, your kids, your grandkids, your great grandkids are going to look back at this and say, you know, ask you, what was it like? You know, even if you're not around, being able to read your words um, will have great meaning. Well, definitely. And I want to ask you about that. So you have not only the chemical officer experience, but you were there for when Homeland Security was being stood up. You know, as you were there helping stand this up and you're talking about all the threats we could face and the kind of systems we needed to put in place, organizations we needed to connect with Homeland Security, you know, was a pandemic part of that threat analysis that y'all went through? It was. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of things, a lot of different scenarios that we all went through during that kind of very immediate post 9-11 process. You know, um, it, just to kind of tell you how all that worked out, I mean, I was working on the Energy Task Force and then suddenly uh, the, uh, the attacks of 9-11 happened, and um, I, I had, we had just started this Homeland Defense Task Force. So this Homeland Defense Task Force that was headed up by a four-star Admiral, Admiral Steve Abbott, um, was then subsumed into what became the Office of Homeland Security, which is really the Homeland Security Council. And, uh, and so I conti- we all continued working, and then more people came in under Governor Ridge, uh, and we, we were really a policy development group, and, and as part of developing policy, we were also charged with reacting to events. Now, remember that we did have a biological attack right after 9-11. It was the anthrax right. attacks, right? Yeah, and, that's right. Uh, and so I remember um, going up, or I, I remember hearing the first report of this. I can't, I th- it might have been in the New York Times. It might have been on CNN. I can't recall, but I remember going up to uh, one of our people his name was Seth, and you know he's uh, just—he's probably the, one of the world's foremost biological warfare experts. And I went up to him and I, I said, "Seth, have you seen this?" He goes, "No, I haven't seen it." I said, "Well, read this," and he did. And I said, "Is this something that we should be concerned about?" And he looked up at me, and I'll never forget this, Joey. He, he said, "Yes, it's definitely something that we should all be concerned about," because uh, as it turned out, that what that anthrax wasn't naturally occurring; it was weaponized, and suddenly you had post office employees and people in, in the House and Senate office buildings uh, that were that were contracting this and dying. And uh, and so suddenly we ended up having to uh, come up with not only policy, but means to be able to deal with it. You know, and we looked at a lot of different methods to detect anthrax because the big concern at the time was in our public transportation sector um, on metros and uh, subways, buses, trains, you name it. And so uh, we, we were looking at lots of machinery and detection devices. And, you know, there was this, we, we had, I had heard about this guy, um, actually, I think it was from Seth. And he said, you know, we really ought to talk to this guy 
by um, by the name of uh, Alibek, Ken Alibek, and he had a Russian name, and he was a Russian emigre. He was actually Russia's biological warfare um, officer um, oh, wow. in charge of their biological warfare, and he had, he had defected to the United States, and he's still around, and he's just a wonderful guy, and he, I said, yeah, absolutely, let's bring him in, and so we, t- we were talking to him all in this room up on the fourth floor of the old executive office building, and we were telling him about all this machinery that we were looking at, all these detection devices that cost millions and millions of dollars. He goes, well, that's great. Um, he goes, I have a, a less expensive option for you. And we said, well, what's that? He said, dogs. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? He goes, well, dogs have the ability to both detect it and ingest it without being affected at all. So why not use dogs? And, wow. and of course, that's what we did. Of course, the great lesson there is look at what the real solutions are that might not be quite as expensive. And, um, and so it, that's right, you know, to this day, when you go into New York or to Washington, D.C., into the metro systems, you'll see dogs there. And the reason the dog is there is because they are trained for anthrax and biological um, agents uh, detection. That's, that's really cool. I remember it was a little bit scary at the time because you didn't really know. You know, there's the big threat of it coming through the mail and it could be in an envelope and you wouldn't know about it. And so... That's the interesting thing about that, but that's, I guess, what were the implications of that from a policy standpoint from that point forward? Well, you started looking at that and said, okay, what were the, what were the other things that could possibly happen? You know, what are mm-hmm. the worst case scenarios? And we do this all the time in the military, right? We look at, you know, what are the worst case scenarios? How do you mitigate against those? And, and so we started discussing a lot of different scenarios. And one of those scenarios was smallpox. And, uh, and there was an exercise called Dark Winter. And, you know, and as a part of this exercise, uh, it really um, kind of made us realize that there is, in fact, there's always a threat of not only an epidemic, but a pandemic. And from a policy standpoint, and also from a, from a uh, government affairs standpoint, how do you deal with that? And what, what is the interagency process that's going to be required? And, and how do you prepare? So, Going through that whole exercise really was a very eye-opening thing for, for all of us at all levels because we realized that, you know, if there is um, a, a re-release of smallpox, at that point, you know, you're going to have a rapid spread and it's an ex- obviously extremely viral. And we haven't seen the face of this, you know, since uh, the 1800s. And so um, it's essentially been eradicated. But if it were to come back, none of us are, are immune from it. So uh, that at that point, we all realize that uh, this is something that you have to prepare for at every single dimension. And, uh, and that includes state, local and federal. And so now as you look at what's going on with the coronavirus pandemic, it's uh, it's remarkably similar. Now, there are differences because one of the things that we've seen is that this has been kind of a gradual ramp up and, um, and, you know, where the, the states and the governors are really kind of at the forefront of this. So it's been interesting just to be able to see that. But if, if it wasn't for those exercises, if it wasn't for the, all those discussions, I'm not sure that we would have been quite as effective as, as we've been. Right. You know, it's, it's a real threat and we live a pretty sheltered life in the States. It's not a big, yep. you know, it's not a big secret. You know, the first time we faced a, an onshore attack was, was 9-11 and, and, and since Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, even now, over 100 years since the last pandemic of, of this scale that we've seen, even though, you know, in the last 20 years, even we've seen several different you know, epidemics have, have threatened. Uh, you know, it's just kind of interesting to take a look at it. Do you think that we 
from a societal standpoint that we don't really take these things seriously or that we've become somewhat complacent about about this type of deal and the kind of you know, there's a lot of talk now about giving up freedoms to in order to get an edge on on the spread of, of this thing. I think there's a way to kind of handle messaging and the news cycle is, is seems pretty threatening all the time anyway, for people to really be able to understand, well, you know, these are threats that kind of sit and linger in the background, but, you know, we don't have to deal with them or, or other people are dealing with them for us. Yeah, you know, I think that we take a lot for granted. I think the complacency definitely comes into play, but that's really human nature. I mean, at the end of the day, we're as a society, um, we really um, have never dealt with this before. So there's a lot of ignorance um, and, and I understand it. Uh, but the, it, it, the, by the same token, you know, we can learn a lot of lessons from the experience of our last major pandemic in 1918. Uh, and if we go back and we learn all those lessons, I think that we would really um, gain an awful lot. One of the thing, one of the really insidious things about pandemics is they, they really do play upon human patients, uh, not only our, our health and our economy, but, you know, we, we say, okay, when are these restrictions going to be lifted? But, you know, when you look back on the experience of the Spanish influenza, that went on for two years. Now, there were right. four months where we lost the vast majority of people to, to the influenza. But during those four months, we had to learn very, very quickly um, about the measures, the population control measures that would be necessary. We'd, we had to learn about, you know, the, uh, the things that individually that we would have to do from just a personal ha- hygiene standpoint. Right. We learned about social distancing, even though it wasn't called social distancing at the time. That's a kind of a new 21st century term. But there's an awful lot that we can look at. And, you know, and it's, it kind of drives me a bit crazy when I, when I hear people saying, oh, you know, um, this, uh, we just can't endure this anymore. Well, you know, look at people who have been through much worse. Look at Anne Frank, for instance. She was, she was in, in, in a quarantine for 761 days right. under far worse conditions. And yet we still have the ability to go to grocery stores. We have the ability to, uh, to go out for walks. And, and, uh, and, 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 you know, and nobody is trying to kill us aside from you know, this, this virus, this invisible enemy. So we really don't have it too bad. And, no, you're uh, right. and by the way, it took it took four months to really flatten the curve in 1918 from uh, from September through December. And then it came back a little bit because everybody said, OK, we can just go back to life as normal. So when you look at that, those are the different lessons. And you look at, you know, who developed all those policies and procedures. Well, one of the big experts was a guy by the name of Dr. A.O. Peters, and he was out of Dayton, Ohio. And, and it was all of the, the measures that proved effective in Dayton that suddenly the federal government took hold of and they told the rest of the country about. And, uh, and that happened very quickly. And oh, by the way, this is before we had the internet. It's before we had television and before we had even telephones. And so everything right. was by telegraph and everything was by newspapers and bulletins. And so um, they were at a real disadvantage um, compared to what we are right now today. Our disadvantage today is that we don't have the patience to deal with this, I fear. Mm-hmm. And, and if we don't deal with it, and if we don't effectively flatten this curve before we start lifting restrictions, uh, then this thing is going, we're going to have a resurgence and we're going to lose all the benefit of the past month. Right. And I see a few different interesting differences, you know, one being a shortened news cycle and that there's news constantly coming out where I think maybe an advantage at that point back then is having a long, a longer news cycle where Telegraph really kind of, and then the release of papers might have limited the amount of news coming out and maybe had less of a need to just fill time or airspace or article mm-hmm. or blog releases. 
you actually had news that had to be right go out every day or, or whenever that news came out mm-hmm. uh, because you're only going to get so much access to people you know once a day or or maybe over radio you'd have uh, some some isolated times in there another interesting thing is just the population was more spread out at that time mm-hmm. uh, the urban centers weren't quite as quite as large or, or centralized as far as populations go and you know you could actually isolate people a bit more and is there, there's just kind of some interesting comparisons but to me, one of the big ones is, you know, we still have the same news cycle now where that space has to be filled and it gets filled by people who just end up talking and some of the messaging kind of gets thrown out there. And, and obviously, you know, we, we have large groups of people that have more extreme lines of thought of you know, start attacking, you know, one political because that's become habit at this point. For those sources of news, you, know, you kind of have some bad habits to go into a really a, a national emergency where that kind of stuff needs to be laid aside and so people can respond appropriately and, and understand kind of what they need to, to go do and kind of compare it to experiences in the military where you know you have guys that get into trouble you know when you're back you know in the rear or when you're not kind of out there doing what you're doing and you, you have to be focused and then once you go out you do have that focus because you have a mission to go do Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, everybody's sharp and everybody understands. All that stuff kind of goes like slips off. You know, I feel like we have a tougher time doing that as a larger society of people, where it's become so ingrained that people can't shed that and go, "Okay, well, these are the important things right now. All that other stuff really isn't that important anymore." You know, what's interesting too, Joey, is that you're exactly right. There's, it was fascinating for me as I was doing a lot of my own research on on this on the Spanish influenza um, over a century ago. You know, it, when I was looking at that, especially at that whole kind of um, example of Dayton, Ohio, it was really interesting for me to, to observe that nearly all the newspaper articles covering the pandemic were below the fold or they were embedded within these uh, these newspapers. They weren't the headlines, you know, which is really yeah. interesting for oh, me wow. because, I mean, here today you look at it. I mean, this is the main headline every single day. You know, what's Absolutely. the death rate? What's the mortality rate? You know, wear a mask. You know, now. All these things are necessary just from a public awareness standpoint. But, you know, the thing that they were, the people, the American people were most concerned about in 1918 wasn't the Spanish influenza. It was the war. They called right. it the Great War then because it was, you know, they didn't realize it was World War One. You know, they, 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 didn't, they, they didn't know there was going to be a World War Two at that time. But, you right. know, this was killing 50 million people. Now, today, you know, we haven't lost that many people from this from this virus yet. But there is this kind of hysteria. But there's a lot of historic parallels that I think that we experienced um, a century ago that we're undergoing today. And if we look at those, you know, you can look at a lot of different lessons, you know, from a technical standpoint, but you can also look at leadership lessons. But my, my point all along here is that you know, we shouldn't be fighting ourselves on this because at the end of the day, we're not fighting ourselves. We're fighting a virus. And, you know, and with a virus, you can you can insult them, you can argue them, you can you can even ignore them. They don't really care. A virus is still going to it's it's opportunistic. It's going to go to the point of least resistance and, and right. look for a host to be able to infect. And, uh, and so you can't negotiate with a virus. You can only contain it, suppress it or eradicate it. And and, you know, and, and until we get there and until we understand that, I think we're always going to have these these kind of very 
local debates. You know, here in Annapolis, for instance, is the state capital of Maryland. And, you know, we had these massive uh, protests going on, mm-hmm. you know, and you had helicopters right overhead our house and you had these 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 truck horns going off. And, and wow. you know, the whole time I'm thinking, you know, why are we doing this? You know, don't we understand that uh, that we're all in this together? But, you know, looking back at at our military experience, you know, you remember what it was like to go into MOP4, right? You know, we had to spend, what, eight hours a day in, in uh, that protective gear, right? And, um, and that, that was all for a, a single purpose, and that was, to, first of all, um, just to get us used to it, but then also to educate us and give us confidence in our own equipment. So I really think that at the end of the day, what the, the piece that we're missing in this is getting people to understand what this virus is all about and how to eradicate it, how to suppress it, how to contain it. And until we get there, we're going to continue to have this hysteria that's that's developed. Well, given that, if you had the mic for however long, what would be your message? What would you tell people? I would say be prepared to be in this for as long as it takes. But I mean, that's probably going to be about three to four months to flatten this curve. And then once we do that, then we have the ability to get back to at least some semblance of normalcy. I don't think that life is ever going to be quite as normal as it was in 2019. But, you know, here we are. And so we have to deal with it as a society, because if we have a resurgence, all those gains are are erased and we start all over again. My concern is this. If we have this resurgence and if we had gone back to normal, then what happens when we have to reinstitute those restrictive measures? That's when I think you're going to start seeing, you know, these protests going to civil unrest. And uh, and that's what really concerns me, because for me, the antidote isn't the vaccine necessarily. It's uh, or the tests. It's the education of our populace and getting people to understand what this is all about. My belief is you can't really depend on our, our media to do that anymore. It's it has to come from other quarters. So I would really kind of put the emphasis on the education of, uh, of our populace. And, and once you start educating people, once they know what they're dealing with, then they have tools to be able to deal with it. Absolutely. I completely agree with everything you just said. I think, yeah. this, I think it's something that a lot of people really need to hear because you, know, you hear all the excuses. Oh, well, it's, you know, it's not even as bad as a flu or it's just a whatever flu. And it's like, no, 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 you don't understand. It's, it's more than that. And it's really scary and you're, you should be you should be afraid of it not for not to create panic, but you should have a healthy fear of what this actually is, which is something we've never seen and okay. something we don't have an answer for yet. I like um, jumping out of airplanes, right? You know, I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, we we went through um, a whole month of training to be able to do that, and we always knew that uh, that that parachute worked. And oh, by the way, if if it didn't work, then uh, we knew how to deploy a reserve. <laughs> you know? So it's really not that much different at the end of the day. No, definitely, that's that's very true. So you talked about some of the effects we might see coming out of this. The sky's the limit on talking about this, but. Some of the things that I see that are very interesting to me, there's kind of the societal changes we can kind of expect to see. I think another one is global power positioning. Where's, you know, at the end of this, where do you find China in the scheme of things and how the world thinks about, you know, their part in this? And then and there also there's kind of the strategic management of supply chains. I've read some really great articles on that. Uh, so let's kind of start with the first one. What are some maybe even some societal repercussions of what we're going through now that we might be able to expect? Well, I think 
that it's going to all of this is going to have a dramatic effect on many dimensions of our life, but also as it relates to to foreign policy. And you mentioned supply chain; uh, it'll it'll definitely impact that as well. It can't help but, especially given the fact that um, that this did originate in China and it was ignored, and it might, you know. And then there's all there's also the speculation that it it, it uh, that it might have been released from a lab, or um, and I think it's a little bit further fetched is that it uh, it might have been engineered as well. And all these things we don't really um, have great visibility on yet. But what we do know is that we aren't communicating well globally, internationally. And and as a result of that, I think that we're all going to have to um, be able to reassess our relationship with with uh, countries like, like China. Because um, and that's across the whole uh, range of, of functions and dimensions. But, you know, my belief is we ought to start off with, you know, just uh, what we do and how we how we handle and where we produce our, our prescription drugs and our infrastructure, our, our medical supplies. Because if uh, if all that's being produced in, in China, then where does that leave us? China's going to take care of themselves first. <laughs> and so it's really, a, a, it's, a, it's a whole business model of, uh, of being able to reassess um, American manufacturing and how much of it is needed to be competitive. What are, you know, how, do you, how do you do this? And is it through import fees? Is it through restricting imports, subsidizing production costs? Who knows? But um, you know, at the end of the day, there's a whole reason why, for instance, that, that China is in places like like Africa and uh, and in Afghanistan, and why they have a presence there, and it's because of rare earth minerals um, and petroleum. Right. And so, without rare earth minerals, you can't create a lot of basic infrastructure like the respirators, even our iPhones, for instance, or iPads. You know, computers. Certainly. You you need those things, and if they have a monopoly, then we're going to be vulnerable to them all the time. So, in the grand scheme of things, I think these facilities and, and these capabilities need to exist within our own borders. If we've if we've learned really any any real lesson from from this whole pandemic, it's that our vulnerability to another nation's deliberate or intentional malpractice should really be kind of at the top of that list. No, I completely agree, and I I think that's something that we should look for is that it's almost a, a reality that we need to face. Some of that needs to come back uh, either onshore for us or at least at least within the continent but the second order effect of that is probably higher pricing for for certain things which makes us forces us to look at other systems that we need to adjust like healthcare and mm-hmm. and and how we price prescriptions and things like that so there's just there's a lot to to talk about there and we'll, be, with, we'll definitely be having those discussions too without question i think that at, at a minimum um it's going to be uh, discussed at some very high levels definitely but and, and that that has far-reaching economic effects. You know, we couldn't even begin to touch on, on our discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what about, you know, I think one of the interesting things to talk about is in observing all of this happening is the role of the executive office. You kind of see the way that there's some management of health equipment and the, the supply chain of that, their role. And well, there's a lot to be said. And it's obviously, you know, a very embattled position at this point for both good reasons and, and not good reasons. Well, the whole role of the of the executive branch is to uh, to help the states and to provide guidance to the states. Now, if uh, if worse comes to comes to worse, you know, the president does have the constitutional authority to declare martial law, but he's he's not going to do that unless things got so bad 
um, and, and, and the conditions became so extreme that, that it became mandated. But at the end of the day, this is a, a state governor's show, and that's why you see this wide disparity sometimes between uh, what's happening in Florida and what's happening in, in, in Maryland or South Dakota or, or New York, you know. And so all these uh, governors are really trying to determine what's best for their state, how does it apply, and they're all taking different measures uh, and different approaches to it. We're going to find out what are successful and what are not. But, you know, at the end of the day, all these states border one another. And so we're all in it together, right. too. But, you know, when you start getting into this whole debate about the Constitution, um, you know, I tell people all the time, look, if you think that this that what, what's happening right now doesn't fall under the constitutional authority of the president and the governors, then you really need just to you could start off with just reading the preamble of the Constitution. Our government is responsible first and foremost is the public safety of their of their populace of their citizens, and that's what they're doing right now. Now you could get you can even go in more depth. You can look at quarantine measures, and those are really actually covered by the Tenth Amendment. And then there was a. There was a Supreme Court decision back in the early 1800s. I think it was like, uh, I don't know, 1824, something like that. And, you know, and there was a whole decision that guided this that allowed governors to be able to declare quarantines uh, in order to be able to protect their citizens. So right. there's a lot of different things out there that people just aren't paying attention to and they're not educating themselves on. And so instead, they'll just kind of go off on Facebook or, or Twitter you know, and, and, uh, and they'll be very uninformed. And it, it might sound good, but at the end of the day, it's just wrong. You know, and this it's really right. not at all what our, what our founders had in mind. Now, you, know, it, you can go all the way back to uh, the Revolutionary War and you'll see that they had to deal with pandemics, too. There was a smallpox mm-hmm. pandemic during the Revolutionary War that, that George Washington was having to deal with while he was fighting for our independence. And it was probably the biggest threat that he faced, even more so than the British. Absolutely. And uh, here in Annapolis, it's interesting, you know, you just go d- right down the road from where we're at, and there's the Annapolis National Cemetery, but right next to it is uh, is another cemetery, two cemeteries, actually. And on this hill, they used to call it Smallpox Hill. And so this is where, when, when Annapolis was going through the smallpox pandemic, they were treating people, and they were also burying people. And those people are still buried right there in, in those cemeteries. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. It's, wild. It's, uh, it's really interesting. It, it provides, you know, some good perspective, you know. I mean, we're actually really fortunate in our, under, you know, to have this kind of understanding of how pandemics operate and um, and our ability to treat them because we're, we're seeing a far less casualty rate, you know, even as, as serious as it is. Um, if, uh, if this had been even 100 years ago, I think the casualties and the fatalities would be in the millions right now with this virus. I really agree with that. Just because of the the speed of transmission is pretty incredible, mm-hmm. and the malicious nature of the transmission. I guess you can I guess you can kind of call it that, even though it you know it's, it's a virus. It's not you know it doesn't care if it's malicious or not. But just the fact that you can transmit it without showing symptoms is very scary. Absolutely. Oh yeah. By the way, I love the uh, the series John Adams uh, for a few different reasons. Oh but yeah. It, it really great. depicts that this yeah it depicks the smallpox pandemic yeah it, is, it mm-hmm. depicts that very well. Yeah, it does. It was it was fabulous. Fabulous. We, I, I think I watched it all in practically one sitting. Oh, wow. All right, let's break real quick. Don't think for a second that just because Emblem is slinging out sweet-ass face masks to save the world, that they aren't also taking orders for your unit gear. Roll over to EmblemAthletic.com to get started on a special design for your group of barrel-chested American freedom fighters so they can look the part when you roll back into collective training. That's right, it's coming, so get started. 
Now let's get back to the interview. Well, another interesting topic of this pandemic is the curious tale of Captain Crozier with the Navy. And it's been a very interesting thing to watch, but kind of the entire response within the military. And, you know, I, I feel like the Pentagon has done some pretty, has taken some pretty interesting measures, some pretty, some pretty good measures in a lot of cases, you know, extending uh, brigades in, in Europe for training, uh, mm-hmm. keeping them in place so they don't come over, come back over and, and, and risk, you know, risk spread to a few different other things. But how do you feel about that, about some of the response from you know, individual units? And it, it feels like some of the messaging from or some of the power from the Pentagon has delegated a lot of power to some of the commanders. And some of the response has been disjointed across different bases and units. Yeah, it's kind of like looking at the states and the, and the municipalities, right? You know, it's a, yeah, I, and I'm not, I, I confess that I'm not read in on everything that the Department of Defense is doing right now. Right. What I will say is that, you know, I, I think that we learned the whole USS Roosevelt example really kind of brought this whole thing to the fore and the impact that, that a pandemic can have on our military as well. Because, as you know, Joey, it, our military is a direct representation of our society. And, um, right. and so what, what affects our, our military is going to affect our society and vice versa. And, and, and we certainly saw that in the whole uh, situation with Roosevelt. And so... Captain Crozier, my belief is that he did exactly the right thing. And, you know, there's there's a lot of things that we don't know because it's all part of the investigation. But I think that he was really kind of at the end of his rope. And, you know, in the Navy, you've got a mantra that goes ship, shipmate, self. And he all three of those elements were, were threatened. And, and if you look at his memo that he, that he wrote, it was really interesting because it was extremely well written. Mm-hmm. And um, and he said, we're not at war right now. And if we were at war, we would be manning all battle stations, essentially. And we would fight and we would win. But this isn't a war and we need help. And it needs to come at a very high level. Now, th- that has lots of implications about the whole chain of command. And uh, and I'm not sure um, you know, what the level of communication was with his direct chain of command. But at the end of the day, Roosevelt, that aircraft carrier is a strategic asset. And it's something that uh, that our Navy and our Department of Defense and really our nation is going to be concerned about. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on an aircraft carrier before. I have. And, you know, and even though my experience is somewhat limited, what I can say, having been on board, the it was the USS Lincoln, you cannot pass by people without rubbing shoulders, literally. Right. And, uh, and, and it's very close quarters. And if you have a virus that's spreading rapidly on, on board an aircraft carrier, it's going to affect almost everybody. And, um, and that's what happened. And so, you know, it was very interesting because when, when Crozier was relieved, the numbers of, of infections were, I think, 300 at that point. And a week later, it was all the way up to 600. So that really kind of gives you an idea of the severity of the situation that he was facing. And then he, he was diagnosed with it as well, right, when he came off the right. ship. So I, I tell people all the time, I think that he was he was well justified in writing that letter because he was trying to save his ship and he was trying to save his sailors. I would have even written the memo for him if I was his chemical officer, you know. Right. So I think it's uh, I think he did exactly the right thing. I think he's a great leader uh, for doing it. And I hope that he's reinstated as well. Now, some people disagree with me. I think that especially some of kind of. Uh, you know, those who uh, are, are looking at the whole situation from a very traditional standpoint think that he should have uh, gone in a different direction. But I think then that the situation would have been far worse and um, that nobody would have been dealing with it effectively at that point. 
I think this is a great kind of a lean into talking about leadership because it's a great juxtaposition of leaders where you have a leader that was concerned about the people that they were in charge of. And, 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 and he was concerned about his mission too, because he understood that his mission at that point was people mm-hmm. and, and the safeguarding of the assets. It's not the equipment at that point. It's the people that run the equipment of, right. of, that, of that ship. And then you juxtapose that against the acting secretary of the Navy at that point, who was more concerned about the process and the politics of the, of the situation. You know, not to say that the politics are not important. I just had a, a really great conversation uh, with a friend of mine. Uh, he's actually interviewed for this podcast. Okay. We we're talking about politics are, are an important aspect of leadership because you know, leaders who keep, keep a strong central understanding of what's important, you know, being the people that you're leading, they also need to have an understanding and uh, a working knowledge of how politics work uh, because they need to understand how to, how to conduct themselves in order to move up in organizations and be able to continue to safeguard the really important thing. I just think it's kind of a good role into how do we help people understand you can do those things, you can be a good leader, but you can also conduct yourself in a way where you can continue to move up. How do we better identify that in people and in leaders? And well, um, no, it's a great question, and you know, and, and it really, you know, there's a there's a belief out there that probably read a lot of stuff by John Maxwell, right? You know, and he's this right. great le- leadership guru, and I, I really like him a lot. But he has this one quote. I'm trying to think. It says, uh, uh, "Leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less." And I, I got to tell you, Joey. It's one thing that I absolutely disagree with, you know, because <laughs> leadership leadership isn't about influence. I mean, it's it's a collateral result, but leadership is about people. It's about taking care of people, because if you don't take care of your people, then you're you're not going to get the requisite influence that you're looking for. And so, right. at the end of the day, really, you know, what this is all about is, you know, people think that that leadership is is uh, is kind of downward focused. But what you're talking about is is exactly right. I mean, I think what Crozier was was doing, um, albeit probably in an extreme way, is he was leading up. And so his whole focus was getting the the, the senior leadership to understand that his ship, a strategic asset for, for this country, was under threat by a virus. Not by the Chinese, not by any other enemy, but by a virus. And he needed help. And so that help ultimately came at great cost to his own career, but also to his sailors, one of which died as a result. So, you know, it's all about really leading up. And there's a whole host of other different leadership lessons that you can gain from this this whole pandemic. It's, you know, this this pandemic, I mean, it's, it's a tremendous thing to look at because of all the experiences that we're gaining. You know, these crises, they're, they're very rare occurrences. Uh, they're the kind of the black swan events that you normally only read about. Um, but they require, you know, leadership at all levels, locally as, as well as, you know, at the DOD or at the national level or at the state and the federal levels. And in a crisis, you know, I think one of the first lessons to learn is is that is that you have to really kind of meet people where they are. You have to be able to kind of understand in a visceral way Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You've seen that triangle, right? And you know, Absolutely. when you look at that, what's at the very base? It's it's about people's they they need to be able to feel safe. Mm-hmm. Simon Sinek talks a lot about this as well. That's what leaders do. Leaders make uh, their people feel safe because at the end of the day, really nobody's concerned about hearing about your strategic plans when they're out buying hand sanitizer and, and toilet paper, you know? Yeah. So there's, 
you, if, until you meet their essential needs, you're not going to be able to have those other conversations. And you're not going to be able to fight our nation's wars if, if, if people don't feel confident in where they're at and what they're doing. Right. What you said brings up a really great quote. I'm trying to remember where I heard it, but battles are won by soldiers, but wars are run by a great society or something along those lines. So I forgot who yeah. said it. But it, it kind of takes me back to this is based on some of the responses and, and even some of the societal responses, I, I feel like there's kind of a, a, a lack of leadership in really understanding messaging and he, understanding what people need to hear mm-hmm. and understanding how that needs to be communicated so that you can reduce panic, let people know that, yes, we're absolutely in an unprecedented time, but we're in this together. We're going to find our way out of it. And this is not something that we haven't been through before. And we have great lessons learned from that time before. We've put systems in place to help answer this. But, yeah. you know, that's kind of a message that I've noticed is from a lot of levels is missing. So it's just a, I, I completely agree with you. I see some really, really great lessons coming out of this. And I really hope it puts rising leaders, people who want to go and take the reins of leadership for the nation in a civilian capacity, in, in, in a military capacity as well, but especially in the civilian capacity, it gives some really great correct lessons learned of how they need to adjust course and deal with these types of events. And especially something you said, I love that you brought up you know, black swan events. How do, we, how do we build systems to help absorb these kinds of events instead of getting crumbled by them, right? Mm-hmm. And, and how do we make sure that we use the experience of the CDC and some of these other systems that we've built to, to help us, but also adjust our, our national health system to a, a place where we can scale up if we need to. Uh, we can we can do the things we need to do to be able to respond to these types of events, and even though we may not see them, but every hundred years, it's still important to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and, and it's interesting too, Joey, because I can tell you, having worked in the White House, that these plans have always existed. I mean, we created a pandemic policy for the United States during the Bush administration. And we created lots of other things like this as well, um, especially in the wake of 9-11, all to protect against events just like this, because we were anticipating those. Now, what happens, though, when you have these plans, and as elegant as they may be, they're really pretty meaningless unless you implement them, you know, and until you resource them. And that's really kind of where we're at right now, is we took an awful lot for granted as a nation, because we knew about it, and yet we did nothing. And you can even right. look back in the short term. You know, when did we first find out about this virus, for instance? And there's lots of different ways that people are going to look at it. They'll, they'll slice it. They'll dice it. I can tell you that we knew about this in 2018. We knew about, the, about all the research that was being conducted on this specific virus in, in January of 2018, and we did nothing about it. And you can go back and you can look at the memos mm-hmm. that were written by those State Department officials that went in to inspect the facility at Wuhan, and they raised the red flags about this. They still right. did nothing about it. And uh, and then we found out about the uh, the actual virus in November or December, and we still did nothing. And we really didn't do anything until, and we did, nobody started raising any red flags until the very end of January, but arguably until the beginning of, of March. And right. so so here we are now, just a month into this, and, uh, and an awful lot has happened um, during the past you know five to six weeks, but there's still a lot more to go. And that's really the education that we all need to be able to be pursuing um, for 
Americans at all levels and um, throughout the country. Yeah, I agree. And going back to your yeah to your education, probably the most important antidote that we can can focus on. Well, um, people think you know that you know oh this is as bad as it gets. Well, I, you know I, I got to tell you, it's not. <laughs> you no, know, definitely this, not. Um, COVID has a I think a mortality rate if you look at it of about two percent. You know, and people are arguing that point as well. But when you look at the mortality rate of of other viruses like MERS, for instance, that's a fifteen percent mortality rate. Mm-hmm. And so what are we doing if, if that becomes the next pandemic? Right. And, uh, and so those are all the discussions that we ought to really be having right now, I think. Yeah. And, and viruses evolve. I mean, I think yes. we, we look at this and we go, yeah, absolutely. We haven't seen the worst. You know, I, my wife and I were talking about this recently and, and kind of when all this was happening and how fortunate it is. There are children that are showing symptoms and, and, and being affected by it, but this isn't affecting children as heavily it is, as it is other age groups, man, that, just the mere fact of that is is pretty amazing. And that you know, we are we're not seeing the worst. No, we're not. And uh, and you know, and, and we're also not talking about things like you know what what's causing this. You know, because if this was actually released from the uh, lab there in Wuhan, China, you know, there it, that's not the first time that's happened either. There right. there was a there was unauthorized releases from Fort Detrick, you know, just up the road from where I'm at. There was releases out of labs in Russia and and in China, and so those were H1N1 uh, releases. And so, what happens when it is MERS? What happens when it is smallpox? These right. are all things that could easily happen, and um, they're the things that we we like to read about in novels, but nobody's really thinking about them until maybe now that this is something that could happen. But then. You know what 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 ends up happening when you when you do raise that oftentimes is that oh you're a conspiracy theorist and get your tinfoil hat off well, you know that's this isn't a this isn't a conspiracy these are things that actually happen and I think that our government now is coming to terms with that as well. You know it's actually kind of funny because when you're talking about being in mop gear mm-hmm. uh, earlier in the conversation, you know, and we kind of rolled into the the conversation about the pandemic. I thought back on my military career. I have never spent eight hours in mop gear. Oh, see, we did it, it, that during the Cold War, though, <laughs> you know? Right, right. Yeah. Well, but it t- it's also kind of touching on that complacency. We were focused the entire time from my, when I was lieutenant through two company commands. We were not focused on that. We were yeah. focused on war fighting in a different respect. We were focused on counterinsurgency, and right. it was it was different. That was not our focus, and a lot of that fell out of practice. Now, we were complacent, though. Those are core training abilities that everybody needs to understand. We can't just keep those in a, in a notebook somewhere as tasks that need to be trained at some point in the future. Is we all need to kind of get back into it, even though everybody may hate it and it may not be fun. But it's interesting that you brought that up and it plays right into what we just talked about of people need to be taught this lesson again and get that education. It's painful and it's they are very hard things to think about, but they need to be considered yeah, well, and it's part of, you know, whether they're man-made or naturally occurring, they it's part of life and it's something now that we, we're, we've we been forced to, to deal with and hopefully now we'll be able to deal with it effectively. We'll see. We shall. <laughs> we shall. Here's mm-hmm. uh, back again, talking about leadership. You do a lot of leadership training, correct? Yes. Yeah. I, it's it's actually what I love doing the most because mm-hmm. when I hung up my uniform one of the, and I went into the corporate arena, one of the things um, in dealing with lots of different corporations that I saw and lots of different companies and nonprofits was that leadership was really kind of a fundamentally misunderstood concept and in um, both, you know, as a concept or a practice. 
people would be very quick to say, oh, you know, Joey, you're a great leader. Um, we're going to develop you. But Fenzel, you're really not. So what we're going to do with you, you're going to put you in a corner. And you just keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> and, and of right. course, you know, that's not the way that we were raised for a lot of companies. It's just standard practice. And my whole point of departure here is that, you know, we're all leaders. You know, some of us are better at it than others, but at the, at the very least, what we all do is lead by our own example. Whether that's a good example or a bad one, we all lead with it. And then I realized, you know, how fortunate we are, you know, to be here on the, on the East Coast, on this Eastern Seaboard, where you have so many different battlefields. You've got Revolutionary War battlefields, Civil War battlefields, and, and, and you know, and it's just a remarkable place to be able to have those discussions. You know, it, it doesn't get any better than that, too, because then you can really kind of get to the core of what leadership is. It's about people. And I think for a lot of people, and I think what's really interesting about what you do, it's a lot easier for organizations to learn through talking through other people's failure than it is to talk about their own. Because when you talk about your own, you have people that get defensive, you have people that they don't want to reflect on in that way. But it's really neat when you kind of get to go to a battlefield and you get to look at other, someone else's organization that is well recorded and well understood and you get to talk through successes and failures both but people learn a lot by failure and and that's a whole other conversation about you know retrospectives or lessons learned after action reviews aars you know learning organizations that's a hard thing for some for some organizations but you get to do that by going through some of these old battlefields and, and talking through that and helping people learn through through history and on other people's organizations is always one of my favorite exercises in the army was uh, going and doing those uh, staff rides. Oh yeah. Well, you know, and in, in, in the art in the military is very good at it. You know, it's, it's something that's kind of part of our culture um, at the corporate level, probably not so much. You know, it's not mm -hmm. something that people automatically think about as an opportunity, but once they're there, they forget about what they happen to be doing in their cubicle or behind their computer terminal, you know, and suddenly it becomes very real. And it's not only as it relates to the organization, it's also, there's this kind of visceral understanding of how, it, how does it relate to me as a person? You know, how does it help me relate to my own family and my own friends and the relationships that I've got mm -hmm. in my life. And, right. and so it's really just a remarkable opportunity. And I'll tell you, you can just see people when you get up to, for instance, little round top and you're talking about governor Warren and you're talking about uh, Joshua Chamberlain and Petty O'Rourke and all these people, strong Vincent, you know, it, these are actual people that live and were facing the crisis of their time. And, and how did they respond and, and how did they innovate? And what were the decisions that they made that were critical, you know, to being able to, to turn a situation around to their benefit? And it's really incredible to think about that. And it really kind of leads off to lots of other branches and sequels as, as, as top other topics come up relating to the organization. And, and once you get into that kind of strike that vein, that's when all of the, the lessons um, in, the, in the real learning experience starts. Completely agree with your assessment of how some organizations access leadership because of how they understand that leadership. I you know, kind of take a look at organizations I've been a part of where they're like, oh, this person does a great job of making making sure other people get their work done. Mm -hmm. Well, that's nice. They seem like they might be a good manager, but do they help people understand why they're getting the work done and, and the motivation behind the importance of, of the work that they're doing? Can they express a vision and then make people want to do that? Right. Uh, and so, you know, it's absolutely a very interesting topic. And, and a lot of that, like you said, gets to come up when you walk through some of those scenarios with, with folks and get them to look at it from a different angle. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and at the end of the day, too, it's, 
you know, leadership is really about people and management is about things. And so mm-hmm. once you understand that, then, um, you know, we, and we have to do both as leaders, we have to do both. But uh, if, if, if you're only focused on things, you know, then uh, you're going to your people are going to be left behind and vice versa. And, and you really have to be able to strike that balance. And then the other piece of this is, you know, is it you may be in a leadership position, but that doesn't mean you're a leader. And, you know, real leaders have the character and the integrity and all the values that underpin them. And so those are all things that, that you can talk about as well. And, you know, and, and there's no better place to, to do it than, you know, Antietam or uh, Yorktown or Gettysburg, any of these places. And so it's a great opportunity also just to do it with your own family, you know, and just, just pick one site and stop there and, and talk about it for about an hour and then be on your way. I guarantee you it's uh, there's, there's nothing quite like it. And, uh, you know, my son, one of the things I always try to do with him, he's 13 years old, but, you know, since he was a you know, about four years old, he's been going to Gettysburg and he understands more about Gettysburg than, than any of his classmates. I can tell you that, you know, and so <laughs> it's a, it's a lot of fun, you know, just to be able to watch him and then we can talk about it too, you know? And so I can remember, you know, I took, we went up to Normandy uh, last year at this time and we had a wonderful time. It was there for, it was, uh, both my wife's first time and, uh, and Luke's first time. And we, we took him over to, uh, to see all the battlefields there and, and he came back and, he was talking to his professors about it, and he said, Daddy, they don't even know, you know, what Lafayette Bridge is. <laughs> you know, and they don't know who, you know, William the Conqueror is, you know. And I said, well, Luke, it's because you've been there and you've had these discussions, but they should know, you know. And, and, and so now your challenge is really to kind of educate them on how important it is. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. I feel very lucky to have the education and the exposures that I have. And I know a lot of that wouldn't have happened unless I had deployed and I had gone to places. But I also felt obligated to learn about those places. So, you know, before I went to Iraq, I felt obligated to learn more about, okay, well, for a lot of people, that's the cradle of civilizations. It's Mesopotamia. So what can I learn about there that gives me some context? Well, you know, there's probably a fair amount that's more than a few centuries back uh, that isn't quite as relevant, but it still needs to be understood. And then, you know, Afghanistan is this very similar, you know, you can you can still it's crazy to me you can go back and you can read observations by alexander the great and you're like wow that's still relevant today there's still tribal systems that may not be the exact same but they are the descendants of those tribal systems that are remarkably similar the interaction between all the factions that that live there still that entire region of the world might be one of the consistently contested places in in history well, it makes you more, by, by doing that too, uh, you are making yourself that much more effective as a leader in those, in those places. Because if you know about the history of a location, then you have the ability to talk to people about it. You can put things into better context. I mean, I'll never forget, you know, before we went into Bosnia, I had never been to Bosnia before. And, um, so I started kind of reading voraciously uh, every you know every book that I could possibly find, and one name kept on coming up. His name is Nasser Orich. He was the defender, um, you know, of Srebrenica. Um, I don't know if you remember. You know, he was the one who was kind of putting the UN in, keeping the UN in Srebrenica, so there wouldn't uh, the Serbs wouldn't take it over and wouldn't uh, engage in a genocide there. And and so right when we arrived, the first thing that I did was find a, a translator, a language assistant, and you know I did lots of interviews. And the guy that we ultimately chose was a guy by the name of Demir Mezic. Uh, we called him Chuck. And, and I said, Chuck, I, I said, here, I have your first job for you. He goes, sir, I'll do anything because he was just happy to have a job. Said, what is it? And 
I said, well, I want you to find this uh, gentleman by the name of Nasser Orich. And his, his smile kind of came off and, and his complexion turned this ashen white. <laughs> and he said, uh, you want me to find who? I said, Nasser Orich. He goes, oh, nobody talks to Nasser Orich. And he says, I don't think I'm going to be able to do it. I said, well, don't come back until you do. And he came back about a week and a half later. And he said, okay, I found him. I talked to him and uh, he's willing to meet with you because you're special forces and he regards himself as being special forces. And so over the course of the next several months, we got to know Orich really well, and we developed a great relationship with him. And throughout our conversations, he said, you know, just so you know, you know, I, I know that they want to take me to The Hague, and they think that I've conducted all these war crimes, but I'm innocent. He said, if they want to if they want to arrest me, tell them just to knock on my door. I'll come in. I'll even come to the police station. And uh, and I said, okay, I'll let them know. And and so based on the relationship that we had, it's a long story, but he gave us information that was absolutely predictive from you know not just a day out or a couple days out, but weeks and months out as well. And we gained this this incredible awareness of everything that was going on around Bosnia, not just in our sector, but throughout. Um, and even into Serbia and Croatia as well. And and as I reported this up, I actually received a call from General Shinseki, who was the NATO commander at the time. As you know, it's it's never a good thing when a major is getting a call from a, a four-star general. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he said, uh, I said, sir, I'm sorry, whatever I've done, you know, it's not you've done everything right. He goes, but I just wanted to ask you where you're getting your information. And I told him, I said, you know, sir, uh, I know other people are on this call, and, and if it's okay with you, I'd rather not release that name until we leave. And, and uh, he said, no, I, I understand. He goes, but I'm just telling you, the information that you're reporting is of higher value and quality than anything we're getting from any of our coalition allies and also from anything from DIA or the CIA. And he said, whatever you're doing, just keep it up. And it was all coming from not only Nasser Orch, but other figures like him that we really got to know very well. It's all based on the, the research that we had done, the same kind of research that you did for both Iraq and Afghanistan, and then also just the relationships that we developed. And and so it's really all about that. You know, and it's it, you're always pushing the envelope, probably maybe even just a little bit too hard sometimes when you do that. But if you do it right, and if you take those kind of calculated risks, the, the payoff can be huge. And it Absolutely. was for us. Two things with that. Uh, the first is, you know, I was lucky enough to have a really, really great class on uh, different types of warfare when I was a, a, a first year at West Point. And we were lucky to have, at the time, one of the instructors that was at West Point came in to be a guest speaker. And he was the team leader that was with Karzai in the initial push across. Uh, Jason Amory? Yep, yep. yep. He, uh, he came in and, and talked to the class, and that was really cool. Well, his team had gone through hell, you know. I mean, they received friendly fire, and um, a lot of our friends and, um, and teammates were killed as a result. Right, right, yeah. And it's, there's an entire case study behind that advance by the Northern Alliance to really help push the Taliban back. But it, it's more than just that, you know, that one, what's the movie called? Yeah, Horse Soldiers. yeah. But it, that's an incredible case study. But the second part, more specifically, is what you're talking about is everything we've talked about before is just leadership. It's understanding people, you know, either a group of people or a person. It's by finding out what makes them tick and their history so that you can build empathy and you can build an understanding with them and start building trust and, right. and start a conversation where you can have that byproduct of influence like you talked about. But I think it really starts where you build that trust by by connecting with them, whether that's through empathy or experience, 
going through the same experiences as that person. Whereas you know, you couldn't build that experience with with them, but you had to understand the experiences they went through and yeah. talk about those with them. And yeah. I think that's a key part of leadership that people don't necessarily get right. It, it's about it is about connecting with people, and you have mm-hmm. to do that somehow. I don't think you can be the most effective leader without doing that. You can be a somewhat effective leader because there's different ways to to reach people. Not all of them are positive. You can reach mm-hmm. them through fear, and and that has an effect, but it's not going to be a great long-term effect. You're not going to build a trust in that way, where those people will go and do things that you need them to do without ever being asked. The best leadership is always values-based, you know, and it's always Absolutely. character-based leadership. And and so, if you've got all those those values that are underpinning your own character, and if and and it's something, by the way, as you talk about, I mean, this is this is contagious. This is something that if if you lead that way through your own example, other people are going to adopt it as well. And that's why people say, well, an organization takes on the personality of its of its commander or its CEO. That's absolutely the case, because if it you're is, putting yeah. that emphasis on those things, everybody else will as well. You know, and it's a great way just to develop that those relationships with your folks. I mean, I, I can tell you this. I mean, the best job I ever had in the Army was as a, as a Special Forces 18 commander. And, and I, I got to tell you, all those guys, two of them aren't with us anymore, but uh, all those guys I hear from almost on a weekly basis. You know, it's, it's, awesome. it's through, it's through social media. And I'll tell you, you know, I'll never forget one of the guys that was on my team. Uh, his name is John Lee. He was my junior weapons sergeant and African-American guy. He had these kind of GQ good looks and, um, and just a remarkably innovative uh, leader and, uh, and a quiet leader as well. But I mean, he had a great sense of, of humor. He was a man of, of, of really deep faith. Um, he could assemble and disassemble every weapon in the world. Um, he was fluent in Arabic. Uh, he's just this incredible trainer that, that uh, came up with solutions that I never, ever could have done on my own. But, you know, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, he was he was also with me years later when I was commanding the, the Special Forces uh, Training Battalion on Camp McCall outside of Fort Bragg. And I was, I, I then had retired and he had come to every single chain of command, every promotion that I had. And then I received a call from him one day and he said, uh, he goes, hey, John, you know, uh, just so you know, uh, I'm, I'm down here at the Raleigh-Durham Cancer Center, and um, I've got a few days to live. I just wanted to call you up and say goodbye. <laughs> I said, whoa, wow. stop, man. I said, what are you talking about, John? And he goes, yeah. He said, uh, they've given me a couple days to live, and I just wanted to call you and say thanks. And I said, well, stop right now. I said, I'm coming down to see you. And so I did, and I uh, I, I got into the hospital, and I turned the corner, and there he was. And we spent, you know, several hours just talking. And you know, he wasn't in good shape. He was sitting down. And he had this this uh, pillow that he was kind of leaning into and coughing quite a bit. But we had a great, great conversation. We laughed a lot. And uh, he had this very rare form of of lung cancer that I'm convinced that he had he had contracted as a result of the Gulf War with everything that we were ingesting. And right. And so, you know, one of the things that he said to me, I'll never forget this. He said, you know, sir, that, you know, that, uh, that special forces training that we got. And I said, yeah, John, I said, I, I remember it well. <laughs> he said, uh, he goes, well, he goes, it, it helps you die. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, he goes, well, I'm just telling you, he said, it's, it just makes you far more resilient and it really prepares you for that kind of adversity, you know, and it, it makes, it gives you a, a great perspective. Um, it, it helps you push through when things are rough and, um, 
And he goes, and all those things are happening right now. And he goes, you know, and so I'm not afraid to die. He goes, in fact, I'm kind of looking forward to it because I'm ready to meet the Lord. <laughs> I said, I said, well, you know, John, I said, that's amazing. And he goes, he goes, well, you know, I've just, he goes, John, he goes, I've done my best. And, and at that point, I just realized, you know, that as long as any of us have done our best in life, we're incredibly lucky. And that's the most anybody can ever ask us. Yeah. And, uh, and that's really what a leader does is they, they push you to be your very best, to meet your kind of pure potential. And John Lee, John Lee was that kind of leader, you know, and he was a guy, as we talked about at the very beginning of our discussion here, is he's somebody who led up, you know, through his own example. And so those are the people that really had just this remarkable effect on me growing up and, and still do today. I mean, I've, I've got his picture, you know, right in my bedroom. I, I look at it, you know, every day, you know, and, uh, and I think about him and I think about his example. So I got to stop awesome. there. Otherwise I, I can get pretty emotional. <laughs> no, I, every, every good reason to, yeah, I just think about, I think that's kind of a really cool thing is to do that reflection and, and just think about all the people. I just, I got to tell you, I am so damn proud of people that I've had the great privilege of, of serving as their leader. I've got two lieutenants. One was my XO and the other is my PL. They're both running for Congress right now. Oh, good. That's great. Out of, out of all my PLs, you know, I had something, I, three or four of them went to selection and all passed. Uh, that's great. Um, that's great. but you know, I, I, the, the same experience that you had with being a team leader, I'm not saying it is the exact same experience cause it's no, not, yeah. but I felt the same way about being a company commander, about having, having that charge to, to help people realize their potential and help them meet it. Not just to like get them to say, Hey, well I can do other stuff. It's like, Hey, well let's not just stop there. Let's keep going and let's, but let's all do it together and help improve each other together. And, I completely agree with you. That's I think that's one of the most valuable things that a, a leader can offer. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's all at the end of the day too. It's all about mentorship too. You know, um, great leaders are great mentors, and those people can be either senior or junior to you, or they can be you know um, people of equal rank. I mean, it could be anybody. You know, but I think it was um, Norman Vincent Peale that said, you know, the the toughest test of of self esteem is to bow your head and be able to say, you know, I, I can't do it all by myself. And, and I think that that's what really what leadership and teamwork is all about is where everybody says, you know, okay, let's do this together. And if you think about all the best and greatest achievements that you've ever had, whether it was a promotion that you received or a problem that you solved, it's, um, you know, all those things, uh, you ask yourself, did you do it alone? Well, you mm-hmm. know, probably not. <laughs> You know, you probably, chances are you probably had a lot of help. And so, you know, the best mentors that I've ever had um, were the ones who were ostensibly at least working for me. And and the best leaders I've known were the ones who were probably the most quiet and and maybe even the least expected. John Lee was one of those guys, you know, and uh, that's why I think about them all the time. And they kind of helped me understand where True North is. Absolutely. Wow. I honestly don't know where to go from there because that was... (laughs) Um, well, we're, you know, Joey, we're, we're, you know, we're all really lucky and, you know, and I, you, you have, you know, all my admiration for doing this podcast too, because I mean, I think that it's something where, you know, a lot of us, not only those of us who are in uniform, but also civilians, you know, and, and those of us who are out of uniform have the ability to learn from each other's experiences. So my hat's off to you. I just want to thank you so much that it's been incredible uh, talking to you and, and I really appreciate everything you've had to say. It's been yeah. awesome. 
Joey, it's been great. You know, and, and anytime, any place, brother, you know, whatever I can do for you and for all your listeners as well. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Now, I, I would love to be able to talk to you again sometime about some of your other experiences. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and uh, there's there's lots more to talk about. But, you know, it's it's been just a delight to be able to, to have the discussion and to be able to talk to you. Well, again, thank you. If you'd like to contact John or learn more about his battlefield leadership training and tours, leadership training, or corporate communications capability, you can visit his site, johnfenzel.com. That's J-O-H-F-E-N-Z-E-L.com. There, you can also take a look at any one of his books, The Lazarus Covenant, The Sterling Forest, or The Fifth Column. All excellent thrillers set against the backdrop of very real history, as well as all too familiar modern political and international conditions. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder before we part, head to EmblemShield.com to design an awesome mask your people will love. You know the next best thing to making sure your folks are kept healthy? That the masks are made right here in the U.S. by folks working to keep our country moving, and I think that's an initiative we can all get behind. Go to EmblemShield.com to get started today. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to the show. If you liked it, please share it with family and friends, and please consider leaving a rating, or even better, a review. It really does help. And while you're at it, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to connect with the show, you can visit the website at nstiwpodcast.com. Follow on Twitter at nstiwpodcast1 or on Instagram or Facebook at nstiwpodcast where you will receive additional notifications as well as additional content. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to see it continue to dive into bigger and better stories, consider donating. Navigate to the website where you can read how the donation will be used and you can easily donate over PayPal. On a final note, if you or someone you know has a story worth telling, please submit a summary via a contact form on the website for consideration. Thanks again and get out there and do something worth telling about.